It's the 11th of August, 2015, and this is episode 237. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. So Ethereum formally launched their Frontier, I guess this is the first actual mainnet release of the Ethereum platform for smart contracts. And it's been interesting because, you know, this is a culmination of over a year now of work. They did the fundraiser uh, last spring and worked on it for the entire year. Hundreds of people involved with the project, lots and lots of contributions and just a ton of test nets. And today they've released the first version of it that people can actually use on the mainnet. And I spent two hours this morning trying to get it working, and I couldn't do it because I'm not a developer. (laughs) Oh, man. It it was really exciting, though. It was very exciting. (laughs) I installed Chocolatey so that I could use a command line interface to install things. And, like, you know, I'm a fairly technical guy in terms of I can understand stuff. But when it comes to actually getting in there and working with the command line interface, that pretty much is, you know, uh, DOS was as far as I ever went, and I didn't get very far in that. So it's, (laughs) it's been simultaneously really exciting. And also, I now can't wait for the next step. Ethereum launched with an interesting problem, which was that because they wanted the network to be entirely decentralized, they basically picked a set of parameters that would trigger when the launch actually happened. And then everybody who wanted to mine Ethereum at the very, very beginning actually has to build their own version of the Genesis block from all of the Bitcoin uh, addresses that donated. And then everybody essentially uses those to start mining. And the network at the point that there becomes consensus about, yes, this is the same Genesis block that everybody created, then the network actually goes online. So I couldn't figure out how to get the Genesis block to create. But besides that, I think it looks pretty interesting. And one of the really interesting things about Ethereum is that it offers a much easier scripting language to work with than most things that are available. And as far as smart contracts are concerned, like I'm also looking at it, you know, in addition to Ethereum, Counterparty is forking essentially the smart contract language. And so this uh, announcement of Ethereum also puts that feature set in at least some way into the Bitcoin protocol too. We're not actually going to talk about Ethereum today. There isn't too much to talk about at this point, just because it is such an early project. The reason for this aside, outside of just kind of noting that this is a milestone that's passed for a fairly important project, is to talk about the fact, frankly, that some people view the project like that, and not just talking about Ethereum, but any project that isn't explicitly built on Bitcoin, as having effectively already failed in the marketplace because Bitcoin has basically already won. This is a a line of thinking sometimes referred to as Bitcoin maximalism. I've been guilty of calling it that because it's not generally something that I agree with. I think that solutions are going to wind up being more important than the technology that they're built on. Technology is kind of the enabling layer, but the solutions that they offer are really what matter. But that is not what everybody thinks about. And Bitcoin maximalism, you know, thinking that Bitcoin is it, whether or not it actually is, uh, you know, we don't know yet if it actually is, is something that a lot of people within the Bitcoin community really feel strongly about. They feel like it's a waste of time to work on just about anything outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem because of this. So I wanted to take the opportunity here to talk about that, to talk about whether Bitcoin has already won, what Bitcoin maximalism is, what it means, the different kind of ways of it. And again, this is not intended as an ad hominem attack against people who believe that Bitcoin is it. This is just to kind of try and discuss what's going on here. If I'm wrong, then I'd like to know that too, because certainly I think that this is an interesting 
but incorrect perspective. I think you said something really important just earlier there, Adam, when you were describing the problem, which is like the solutions are more important than the technology themselves? Well, that, that's the basic line of thinking is that Bitcoin is a technology. It's a protocol. A counterparty built on top of that is a protocol, you know, technology built on top of a technology. And that absolutely might be the thing that delivers the solutions to the problems that cryptocurrency is trying to solve. But ultimately, if some other technology that also solves the problem in a way that is equal, you know, or that is functionally equal for the people using it, that is a solution too. And so that's really where the competition is. It's not so much about what can your technology do. It's about what are people using your technology to do and what kind of impact does that have on people wanting to use your technology versus other technologies, basically. When Bitcoin came out, there were a number of problems that it did a wonderful job of solving. One was just the horrible messiness and the friction in the existing banking system, giving people a little more autonomy and control over their own finances. So that was a big problem. Also, the problem in computer science of the, in general, of the Byzantine generals problem that Satoshi solved. Like, how do you communicate in an unreliable environment where it's not clear whether messages have been received? Solving that with a peer-to-peer network. Like, the invention of the blockchain was the other solution that Bitcoin provided. Like, how do you have a historical public record with nobody being trusted, time-stamped to show a historical progression of events and not depending on any kind of centralized server. That was another problem that Bitcoin solved and innovation that it provided. So I think the beef of Bitcoin maximalists is like, it's not always clear what these other projects are solving. They're taking stuff from Bitcoin elements like the blockchain concept and maybe building on it, maybe adding the ability to do different things, putting in tokens or tweaking parameters about Bitcoin. And maybe they're adding some new stuff, but those fundamental innovations, Bitcoin has already taken care of that. So what problem are these things trying to solve? And sometimes, admittedly, sometimes it seems like they're trying to solve the problem of the founder's own financial interests, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they're not actually contributing much to the world. They're not actually providing a solution to a problem in the market, which is what all entrepreneurship and all business is about, finding something that's bothering people, a pain point making it easier, solving a problem for them. And sometimes it's hard to see what problems these different projects are solving. I've been accused of being a Bitcoin maximalist because of some statements I've made, specifically in the entire argument about Bitcoin versus the blockchain. Over the last probably six months, we've seen this marketing pivot to rename the cool parts of Bitcoin into the blockchain, remove some of the negative connotations, and produce a more technology-driven, less ideology-driven, more palatable set of technology for perhaps banks to consume. And obviously banks are far more interested in what they call the blockchain than Bitcoin at the moment. It's an easier pill to swallow. And I've been highly critical of that concept and kind of ridiculed the whole Let's take the revolutionary technology, strip out everything revolutionary, and then pretend we're doing something disruptive approach. But at the same time, I think that the argument here is a bit more nuanced than what we've discussed so far. Here's the big issue. The big invention behind Bitcoin is not the currency, but it's also not the blockchain. 
the blockchain as a hash chain set of blocks is really not that novel and not that interesting. What is really interesting is the combination of all four things together. And the important thing we haven't mentioned is the Nakamoto consensus. And Nakamoto consensus being the ability to agree on a set of consensus validation rules for transactions and blocks that are then implemented through a competition using proof-of-work. That is the decentralized part of the technology. So part of the funny thing here is that when people try to pick and choose which parts of Bitcoin they like and which parts they don't like, and to rename it, and what I've been critical of is the idea that you can take the blockchain technology, which is arguably the least interesting of the innovations, and not just strip it of the currency, but more importantly, strip it of consensus of Nakamoto consensus and proof of work, and go into an environment where you have a more centralized signing instead of mining, centralized closed network blockchain technology, and pretend that that somehow is really disruptive or really interesting or really revolutionary when it's none of those things. So to me, I think the important realization and part of the reason that I get called a Bitcoin maximalist is the idea that a blockchain is really, really interesting when it's open and decentralized. And it's only open and decentralized when its validation works on a Nakamoto consensus system. And the reason I say that is because there has only ever been one consensus system that is scaled to this level, and that is the Nakamoto consensus system. We have no other examples that can deliver open decentralized blockchain consensus. And that Nakamoto consensus system in turn requires a token that is used as a system of reward. And if you don't follow the rules, punishment, you lose money if you're paying for electricity for Nakamoto proof of work and not gaining reward. So you need a system of reward and punishment that aligns incentives with consensus. And that reward, the token, needs to have value, and that value needs to be globally tradable. Meaning that you can't have a usable, open, decentralized blockchain without, so far as we know now, a Nakamoto consensus mechanism. And you can't have a Nakamoto consensus mechanism that works and is secure without a currency, and you need all of those things in order to deliver security without having to have trusted third parties on a globally scalable system. So we only know one way of doing that still. Even after six years, we still only know one way, and that is blockchain plus Nakamoto consensus plus proof of work plus currency. So if you try to strip any of those things out, then the question is, well, how do you bootstrap something that is able to achieve the same goals as the Bitcoin blockchain, and is secure. What we know about the Bitcoin blockchain is that it can support an economy at the moment that ranges on the low end from anywhere from $4 billion to, we've seen up to $10 billion, arguably because of the cost of attacking that consensus mechanism, probably more than $10 billion. That means that you can trust the Bitcoin network to execute transactions in the millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, if you have an alternative, and certainly Ethereum would be one example where this is a, an outstanding question, how big of a transaction monetary value can it support with its security mechanism? How big can you bootstrap a security mechanism 
And do you need to build an entire mining infrastructure all over again? And is it even possible to build an entire mining infrastructure all over again when people can attack it in the early stages before it's big enough to resist attack? I think that's the outstanding question, which is why I think the entire idea of blockchain as a technology without the currency, without the open decentralized Nakamoto consensus is really just a slow database and a really of not much use other than some narrow cases that are interesting to banks and, and not really that revolutionary. So you can't unpack a blockchain, basically. When you take something like Bitcoin and you take away any of the core elements that sort of power the internal incentive mechanisms, then you fundamentally break it because there are reasons why all those mechanisms are there. And so far, it's the only thing that's worked. Maybe you can unpack, maybe you can invent and certainly people have tried. So one alternative, for example, is to use a proof of stake system as an alternative to Nakamoto consensus. And then the question is, how do you bootstrap a proof of stake? That's proven to be very difficult to do and hasn't really bootstrapped to any significant scale yet. And how do you bootstrap it before it's attacked? So if the value that's being transacted exceeds the value that you can secure, then your network gets attacked. So you actually have to have security for more than you're transacting. In Bitcoin, that's actually one of the accusations against Bitcoin is that it's inefficient or environmentally inefficient because mining is so far ahead of the actual transactional value on the network. But that's not a bug, that's a feature. What that means is that you're actually able to secure much bigger transactions than we're doing on the network today. And by having the mining scale run ahead of the transactional scale, that means that the network can grow securely. If the mining was running behind, then the value of the transactions you could do would be limited because there'd be incentive for people to attack it. And if they could spend less money attacking it than the value of the transaction, then they'd attack it, right? So that's always a challenge. This is the biggest challenge here is that really the only way to bootstrap a consensus mechanism is to go for three years while everyone's ignoring you, laughing at you, not really paying attention, not thinking it's real money, until you succeed and then have a big enough infrastructure that's hard to attack by the time people realize it's real money, which is what Bitcoin did. But it's arguably impossible to do again, because if you see an, an alternative chain that you think will have value in the future, well, then you have incentives to attack it now while it's still young, right? Okay, so I hear two basic parts of your position. One is that, again, you have to think about it, right? You can't just pull stuff out, you can't just put stuff in, because ultimately the balance that exists within the ecosystem is a fairly fragile one that needs to be the correct balance, otherwise the incentives are misaligned and things will go wrong. The other part of it is that Bitcoin has already effectively succeeded because it did it first and so it had all of these advantages from having done it first. But what I don't hear you saying, and one of the things that I do often wind up arguing about, is whether or not that is the way it will be forever. And this is kind of where I take issue, is that I feel like what you've said is a perfectly clear example of what we have going on right now, and what we've seen in the past, and what, if we're going to continue along on the same course, then we'll see in the future. But it seems to me that Bitcoin is itself a perfect example of how things often don't move along as exactly they've done in the past, and that outliers do occur, especially in times when systems, as they are now, are under a lot of pressure. So that's the big question for me is, are we now in a stable state, in your view, where 
because of what's happened so far, Bitcoin is it. And so therefore, something like Ethereum, even though it has good ideas, or even if it has good ideas, seems to have a decent chance too, since they've gotten a lot of early attention and had a lot of development. It's very approachable at even this early stage. Is it possible for something that is not implicitly built on Bitcoin to succeed? Or do we not know yet? That's I, where I differ with the Bitcoin maximalist view, which is that I think that it is extremely difficult, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Far from it. In fact, I think it's very possible. And there are a number of solutions and technologies that may point us in that way. One is the idea that consensus networks are a completely brand new scientific discipline. And the research that's happening in that scientific discipline is accelerating, and there's an enormous amount of research happening in that discipline. The idea that that research will not produce alternatives to Nakamoto consensus that perhaps may be more efficient for certain applications, I think that you can't make that kind of statement without being proven a fool possibly very soon. So certainly I think that can happen. And secondly, saying it's really difficult simply means that if what you're doing is not really differentiating very much, or can be cherry-picked, plucked, and introduced into Bitcoin in a secondary layer like Counterparty, or it can be emulated using this Bitcoin scripting language with a few clever tricks, then the benefit of doing that on the Bitcoin blockchain with all of the security and scale and branding and developer knowledge and startups and investment outweighs the advantage of doing it on a separate chain, so you will very rarely see exceptions. But there will be applications where what you're doing is sufficiently different, either philosophically or in terms of a monetary policy, or, or in other ways that Bitcoin simply can't copy, because then it's not Bitcoin anymore. And Ethereum, I think, is a great example. What Ethereum is doing is it's betting on a fundamentally different approach to the scripting language, one which has additional risks by being Turing complete, but which is looking to serve a completely different set of applications that, while you can do some of them in Bitcoin, it's not very easy to do them. And in those cases, that benefit may be enough to overcome the network effect and mean that something like Ethereum will get the necessary investment in security. That's one opportunity. The other opportunity is that simply something like that hitches a ride using Bitcoin as a reserve currency. And we've seen that repeatedly. I mean, every single altcoin out there, the way you buy it is by first buying Bitcoin. So uh, this effect is already occurring. And with technologies like side chains and things like that, it's much more likely that you can have a completely new feature set, but which piggybacks on the security mechanism of Bitcoin as the path of least resistance, and then feeds into the Bitcoin network effect. We've seen this with Factum as well. They're registering hashes incrementally into the Bitcoin blockchain as a checkpointing mechanism. I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that in Ethereum. All of this simply means that there's a big difference between saying Bitcoin continues to have a compelling advantage, network effect, and growth pattern that feeds on itself and allows it to scale to bigger and bigger transactional values that you can trust, versus saying, and that means nothing else can ever arise. I disagree with the second part. I think other things will arise. But they won't easily replace Bitcoin or compete directly with it. Rather, they're more likely to fly in its slipstream, you know, hitch a ride and work synergistically with Bitcoin. Bitcoin providing kind of the core trusted 
long-term secure value store for additional features in other chains. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by KeepKey. KeepKey is a Bitcoin hardware wallet that protects your money from hackers and thieves while still giving you convenient access. KeepKey generates and safely stores all sensitive information on the secure device itself and does all the signing within it, so your private keys are never exposed to the internet or even the computer that you're using. KeepKey's large display gives clarity to every Satoshi leaving the device. And when it's time to sign a transaction, you'll need to manually confirm and approve it using the confirmation button on the device itself. If you lose your KeepKey device, you can still recover your HD wallets, all your addresses, and all your funds without exposing your private key or your seed to the connected computer you're using. At the LTB network, we actually have rules specifically against taking advertisers pre-selling any sort of physical products after we watched that debacle with mining hardware over and over again. So I was really happy to learn that although KeepKey is not yet shipping, you also can't pre-order it until it's really ready to ship to you right away. That should be coming up in Q3 of this year. That said, I actually have a production unit in hand I've been using for the last few days with very impressive initial results. I'll be sharing some of those experiences with you in sponsor segments on episodes to come. For more information or to be notified when the KeepKey hardware wallet is available, visit getkeepkey.com. And today's magic word is key. That's K-E-Y, key. You've got until the 18th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin the conversation now. Earlier, we were talking about incentives and how it's so difficult to get those incentives to align. And really amazing when you think about how Satoshi did that, really understood economics and I guess human behavior and how to integrate that with a new kind of system like Bitcoin. It's really amazing. And that's hard to do. <laughs> and Partly seen- it's observer bias, right? Observer bias meaning that the reason Bitcoin was successful was because it's successful and we're here talking about it and not talking about the, the ones 20, that failed <laughs> the 20 digital currencies that came before it since the early days of digicash in the 90s that failed because they had all of the problems with centralization and coordination and consensus that failed yes when satoshi did this it wasn't obvious at all and you can see that in the writing around it that this would succeed and now that it did we can look back in hindsight and said oh he got everything right well that's only because we're here to talk about it we have a show that's called let's talk bitcoin right. and not <laughs> let's talk digicash in 1995 well satoshi did study those previous systems and probably took a lot more lessons from them than we may give him credit for or realize Oh, absolutely. In fact, not only those systems, but also other systems that had developed, for example, BitTorrent's peer-to-peer network that I think was hugely influential too. I want to appreciate that about Bitcoin and about Satoshi because I haven't seen really any other projects that do have all those incentives clicking. And 
In the case of Ethereum in particular, I know I've seen them struggle and like change a lot of their plans along the way of like how they were going to try to align those incentives to make the whole network work. And it's challenging. It's really hard. And that's why they haven't had clear answers during this whole process. I guess that just makes Bitcoin and Satoshi even more amazing. But there's also something to be said for the historical context and like looking back at uh, these previous projects that failed. And that takes a lot of time and effort. And I don't know if everybody who's wanting to start a project is willing to sort of put in that looking back at history to take lessons from the past and apply them to their current project. Well, and to a large degree, you don't need to. I mean, that's the thing about it is that Bitcoin or any of these technologies that are built in an open source fashion makes it so you don't have to go back and look at that. You just have to take a solution somebody else already created and then try and create value using that as a baseline. That's like the interesting part, the most interesting part to me about Bitcoin anyways, is that when you have these open source technologies that come out, they raise the bar for everyone around them, right? There was no altcoin ecosystem before Bitcoin came out. And there was only an altcoin ecosystem because Bitcoin was released under permissive licenses that then allowed for anybody who wanted to, to with relatively uh, little difficulty compared to doing it without Bitcoin there as a, something you could just fork and make some changes to. The possibility really is there. But if you look at altcoins, again, even though there haven't been any successes there and they're all just experiments and failures, and there are some like Darkcoin, for example, that keeps reinventing itself and keeps managing to stay relevant and has built its own little vibrant community that certainly doesn't compare to Bitcoin, but that is a meaningful accomplishment unto itself. It has a compelling differentiator, and I think that's the key. The, the differentiator has to be compelling enough to overcome the difficulty of bootstrapping your own security mechanism. And it didn't start that way either. That's kind of another interesting thing about it is that, again, the projects morph over time. So you, again, like you look at Bitcoin, and there are some core parts of what we consider Bitcoin that right up until the first release, we're not in it. And some of the things that he thought for sure, you know, like the send to IP as the standard way to send a transaction from one person to another. So, I mean, like, I think that software development, especially open source software development, a lot of times winds up being you're just trying things because you're doing something that's brand new and there aren't really any sort of best practices yet. And then it's about honing that. It's about finding the things that work and improving them, building them into better parts and finding the things that don't work and trying to deprecate them or get them out of it some other way. There has to the, be a reason to do that, like a problem to solve. Yes, but also I think we underestimate the luxury of flying under the radar. And that's one of the really big advantages that Bitcoin had because you know, Ethereum now, they just did their first release, right? And in the first release of Bitcoin, it was riddled with bugs. And there were so many ways that people could exploit the system and essentially do things like uh, violate consensus rules, denial of service on the network, create Bitcoin out of thin air. All of these bugs of the first year, if you look at them, some of them are uh, really, really big, big problems that got fixed really quickly, really early on. But at that time, they weren't really exploited to the point of destroying the Bitcoin network, because what's the point of exploiting them? You can mine 10,000 Bitcoin on your laptop in order to buy a pizza, and the Bitcoin is essentially worthless, so there's no point in exploiting it. And that's a huge advantage, being able to essentially have this playtime, this honeymoon period. And Ethereum doesn't have that, because right now, if they go into mainnet production and they're, they're using Ether, Ether that people have already bought and priced at a value against Bitcoin, this is already a valuable network, and if the security isn't up to protecting the early investors' ether, 
they have a problem. They don't have that honeymoon period. They go right into a hostile environment where people are going to be trying to attack and extract value from that network. And we underestimate what a huge advantage that was, and Bitcoin is the only one that gets that advantage. I think that Ether actually has an interesting way that they're approaching that problem, because again, like I was a little concerned about that too. And I hadn't been really keeping up with anything that they were doing, and I just know the name of their first release, Frontier, but Frontier is command line only. So to a certain extent, since Frontier is command line only, and there are no end-user facing applications, there are no real wallets or anything that a normal user would be willing to use, and there aren't going to be for several months until this first release period is over, they're sort of enforcing that, just by not giving anybody who isn't a developer the option to even engage with the system. There's half a dozen corporations, including companies as big as IBM, already have bought Ether and are going to be using that exact command line to try to implement test applications with real ether right now. So I don't see how that works, Adam. All of the developers who want to start experimenting and building applications, whether these are prototype or user-facing or not, are going to build wallets and put ether in them. And if the consensus mechanism is broken, and that's a possibility, they're going to lose that money. And they paid to get that money. It didn't come for free. So, I mean, okay, maybe there is a mild honeymoon period, but, but really the level of risk on day one is much, much higher, orders of magnitude higher than it was on day one for Bitcoin. But there's another difference too, and that's that Bitcoin going into it didn't raise $15 million worth of funding and then spend a year with you know 100 people working on it. So whether or not that yields as good a results as Bitcoin was able to accomplish with their honeymoon period or with their initial period remains to be seen. But there are some notable differences here. Bitcoin was very early, and because of that, it had advantages. But Ethereum did it differently, and they've got advantages coming from that too. I definitely agree with you, though, that there is a much greater cost to the user just because there's a cost to the token. But at the same time, if you were an early user of Bitcoin, there wasn't really much you could do with it outside of accept it, and nobody had it. Whereas, again, with Ether, that's not really the case. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. You know, they rely on you having Ether, but everybody else, not so much. So, disclosure here, I bought Ether on day one of the sale in order to use it for development projects. I bought quite a bit. I spent, I think, maybe four or five Bitcoin. I'm a huge fan. I am very interested in the kinds of applications that can be implemented using Ethereum. I'm very interested in the smart contract space. And what I'm most interested about is the possibility of combining Bitcoin and Ethereum in contracts that can be funded with Bitcoin, that can support Bitcoin transactions. I, I think there's a huge opportunity. So I don't see it as a competitor. I see it as very synergistic with Bitcoin. I'm very excited about what the future brings. Whether Ethereum succeeds or not, I'm excited about forging this new path and trying a completely new set of applications. So don't get me wrong here. I think that that project is sufficiently differentiated that it has an opportunity to succeed, but it still has an enormous uphill struggle in order to reach a level of security that allows it to secure large contracts. I mean, I would not put million dollar contracts on Ether. I think even the developers, the project, the biggest fans would tell you not to do that. But at some point a year from now, two years from now, you know, you're going to need to do that. Otherwise, what's the point? And when you need to do that, you want to know that the security of the network is up to supporting that level of trust. So that's the hard thing here.
So Andreas, would you say that the smart contracts problem is the value that you see in Ethereum? Like it's trying to solve that problem? It's just programmable on a whole different level. Bitcoin is programmable money and it's astonishing what you can do with just five or six really simple script operators and the trust primitives, the trust guarantees that are offered by the core Bitcoin protocol. It's but one thing Ethereum, to be able to do cool things, but it's another thing to solve a problem. So I'm just want to make it like really explicit. Like what problems do you see Ethereum solving for you, for other people, for the world? I think there are a number of uh, things. I think you can create very complex programmable financial instruments that can remove a lot of counterparty risk and uncertainty that exists in, in specific financial applications. In commercial transactions, so doing things with import export real estate that require escrow and possibly and that's where it's most exciting the possibility of having organizational structures governance structures where you can have corporation that is managed by member votes and where the outcomes are guaranteed by ethereum i really think those ideas can have immediate practical applications and it opens the door for so much flexibility in the programming that I think there is a possibility we're going to see some incredible innovations come out of that space if it succeeds. If it doesn't, I think that same idea will either get migrated to Bitcoin or you're going to see someone else try it again with under a different name perhaps, or it might migrate to something else. The idea itself, the vision it contains, I think is compelling. I would say the same thing for Factum. It's a compelling vision. It's a big differentiator. And Dash, the possibilities of doing anonymity, all of these are compelling applications which may have very large user bases, right? Like there's a lot of people who have things they need to do that these platforms can do for them. So I think there's room for all of this differentiation, especially when it's in areas that the core Bitcoin protocol simply can't, won't, or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, thanks for that. I like to make it explicit of what exactly value do we see in those things. And Adam, I guess I want to like ask you the same question. I don't know if you have like a specific like pet project that you're excited about, but like I know you're really interested in tokens and the capacity to create tokens and tokenly and counterparty and even mastercoin at a point in the past like tell me what problems you see there and how you see some of those services solving those problems. So it's interesting to note that, like I said in the intro, the Ethereum smart contracting language is actually going to be in counterparty, which means on a Bitcoin compatible platform immediately. So you'll be able to actually, you know, use this stuff, uh, use smart contracts and use the exact same language. And in fact, the same contracts, I believe, is the way it's going to work on both platforms. So the difference becomes, does Ethereum's 12 second block time work better for that than Bitcoin's 10 minute block time? Because strapping stuff on top of Bitcoin, you get all of Bitcoin with it. So you need to be able to deal with that 10 minute per step time as opposed to the 12 second time that Ethereum has developed specifically for executing smart contracts. For me, again, it's just about what is easy to use. And that exists at multiple levels. That exists at the, you know, how hard is it to actually develop on these platforms? Because in the last, you know, six months, a year, that's become something that now I have cared about is how actually difficult is it to work with these platforms and to get these technologies to do the things that you want to do. And then the other side of it is, what capabilities do they present? So if Ethereum, as far as I'm concerned, is going to be put onto the Bitcoin blockchain through counterparty, then the capabilities question is no longer one I need to care about. The capabilities are functionally the same, which is true most of the time when you're looking at Bitcoin relative to another cryptocurrency. 
if it got good enough, if the feature is compelling enough that it makes sense to actually put it onto Bitcoin, then somebody's probably going to put it onto Bitcoin. And unless there's a really good reason to use a blockchain that's not Bitcoin for it, like the block time really mattering a lot in order to, you know, like if you have a 15 step contract, then do you want to wait a minute and a half or do you want to wait an hour and a half? Because that might be what it winds up looking like, the difference. And it might not matter in some circumstances, but in other circumstances, it might. So the thing that I really just wanted to bring this up about is that my time horizon for trying to think I know what's going to happen is like six months these days. And really, I'm only accurate out to maybe three months. So it's very difficult for me to conceptualize that we can predict what is going to happen. And then we can say with any sort of meaningful confidence that Bitcoin is going to be the solution for you know, the foreseeable future. I think that if we're talking about the foreseeable future in a six-month time period or a year time period or even a two-year time period, then maybe that's a safe thing to say. But as you get further out, and even at that two-year time period, we don't know what Ethereum is going to look like or another protocol in a year. You know, Something could really get a lot of traction. It could find a use case where suddenly there's 100,000 people who didn't know a thing about cryptocurrency before, but now they're really interested and they're downloading wallets and using apps. That kind of is the vision that I have for how mass adoption can happen is it's not about the core technology. It's about what are the user facing applications built on top of the core technology and why are they giving people reasons to care when to this point, for all the reasons they should have cared, they still haven't. Because I think that if money was a compelling argument, Bitcoin already would have succeeded. And so far it hasn't because money is really, really restricted. It's really concentrated and that causes all kinds of problems. I disagree on a couple of points there, Please. so I'm just going to jump in. The first one is, first of all, I don't think that Bitcoin hasn't succeeded. I think Bitcoin has succeeded beyond my wildest expectations and dreams. We're looking at uh, year six and all of the metrics are heading in the right direction. The innovation, the investments, the people involved, the number of transactions, the volume everything. Has it achieved global domination in six years? I think anybody who had that goal in mind doesn't understand adoption of technology, because no technology has ever done that, even the fastest growing ones. I think Bitcoin is already surpassing the early growth of the internet, and that's an objective fact that you can validate by looking at the metrics. And based on that fact, Bitcoin has succeeded, is succeeding, and will continue to succeed. I think we can make some other predictions, too. I don't think we can make predictions that are kind of exclusive and say nothing new will come along. But I think I can make a prediction quite confidently that no matter what new thing comes along, its primary effect will be to more likely boost Bitcoin because it will work well with, use as a stepping stone, as a foundation, or validate the idea of and create more interest in this technology then displace it. So I think new things will come along and they will possibly achieve a status that allows them to gain great success. And Bitcoin will continue to grow and will continue to build its network effect and its adoption and its robust security. And most likely it's going to feed these new things just as they feed back into Bitcoin's Adoption. That's the pattern we've seen in the past. I don't see any reason why that won't continue. So that gives me a prediction where you have a power law situation. So in the future, you have five or six alt chains, and I've said this for many years now, uh, five or six alt chains that have compelling, differentiated, well-developed features, broad adoption, economic value, global scale, 
And then you have thousands and thousands of smaller attempts that are either trying or failing or have failed that are insignificant by comparison. And Bitcoin will be at the top of that power law curve for the foreseeable future. I think another thing I have to consider is that a currency that has managed to survive, grow, evolve, and become more robust over six years has a very high probability of continuing to exist for at least the next six years. And each year that goes by, its predicted lifespan expands. Now, that doesn't exclude anything else from coming along and filling another niche, but I still think we can, I can certainly say that Bitcoin's network effect and strength as it continues to grow is very, very hard to displace or have it collapse in any spectacular way. So I'm still very, very positive about Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to take a maximalist view and say the other things don't matter. Unless those other things are based not on decentralized, open, global networks, but they're based on taking just a blockchain and making a centralized, weak, closed network version of that, the CompuServe equivalent in Bitcoin. And I can guarantee you that that's going to stagnate, lose innovation, be less secure, and ultimately fail, even though the banks really want that. So when we talked to Charles Hoskinson almost two years ago, one of the things that he was talking about as a threat to Bitcoin was a company like Google or a company like Facebook rolling out their own version that would have many of the same things and have, you know, it would still be decentralized in the way that Bitcoin is decentralized, but it would have certain characteristics and it would appeal and be marketed to a very, very different and very much broader cohort than so far Bitcoin has seen adoption with. You've also described this in the past as certain fetish communities have a larger user base than Bitcoin does. So that, I guess, is where I'm talking about. I'm not talking about relative to other cryptocurrencies. I'm talking about relative to success in terms of changing the world in a globally pervasive way. So I am not expecting that to happen in six years. I'm saying that in that race, we're still early. But here's the problem, because the thing is, you said that if one of these companies does something that is just as fundamentally decentralized as Bitcoin, but appeals to different demographic. And the truth is, Adam, it can't be decentralized as Bitcoin. In fact, it can't even be close to decentralized as Bitcoin. If another company launches something like that, and, and they do it as a corporate coin of any kind, then they're going to have to face the fact that they are operating in a regulated environment in a specific jurisdiction, and they're going to have to control the use of that system, whether it's a currency or a contracts network or whatever else it is. And that, by definition, means it can't be decentralized. It has to be centralized and controlled. And once it's centralized and controlled, it's no longer really anything like Bitcoin. It very quickly becomes PayPalized, like PayPal. It will be brought to bend to the will of regulators and the banking consortium, and it's going to become a pale version that doesn't allow open innovation and decentralized innovation. Because if you have a really interesting application, you won't be able to put it on that coin because it will violate the terms and conditions. And because those big companies can be put under enormous pressure by governments all around the world and can simply pursue an open decentralized alternative to banking unless it is truly open decentralized, which means they have a better chance of building applications on top of Bitcoin and leaving the we do not control part of it to Bitcoin 
than trying to build an alternative to Bitcoin that by definition they will control and they will have to control and they will have to make close. So I'm not worried about that at all. So this is circling around to if you have the ability, then you have the responsibility effectively. CompuServe couldn't do an alternative to TCPIP because CompuServe had to face the fact that if their users built an application that Uncle Sam didn't like, they'd get sued. And so they had to control and curate all content, and they had to make a PG-13 internet. And guess what? The world doesn't get revolution on a PG-13 internet. Eventually, they got subsumed by the much more effective global reach of TCPIP and the rate of innovation uh, that occurs when you do innovation without permission at the edge. And you cannot build a corporate coin, similarly in the Bitcoin space, that takes away the decentralization without paying the price in innovation. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's really a, the compelling advantage that Bitcoin has as a neutral platform, as a place where you can do permissionless innovation at the edge, and that provides that security to you almost for free. The, that building an alternative that is a weak copy of that very quickly devolves into something that doesn't have any use. To get the advantage of control, you have to give up on the shared ownership. And the moment you give up on the shared ownership, you take the full responsibility and the full cost of maintenance, and you lose all of the advantages of innovation. And, and that's really the fundamental dilemma that means that it is worth doing things with Bitcoin that are less efficient than a centralized system because the freedom of decentralization creates enormous network effect and value for the entire world. To a large degree, it seems like this argues in favor of anonymous creators and that any sort of protocol that has creators or that has a you know, known development team even, I mean, th there is no reason why, if successful, they wouldn't come under exactly the same pressures. Absolutely. But I mean, look at, look at the history of, for example, operating systems, right? More than 80% of the phones in the world run Android, and Android is effectively a clone of Linux. And so where Google went and built their own, they kept it mostly open because they wanted to gain the advantage of the underlying shared technology. And they wanted to create a massive ecosystem with a lot less permissioning on innovation. And as a result, the vast majority of third-party handset manufacturers, the developing world, all around the world, really, Android has dominated because as a more open platform, it can accelerate innovation much faster, and you can get much more variety for niche applications that apply to just a few small carriers in a small locality, and a developer can do that. And that's the advantage. The, the walled garden approach may succeed in the short term, but in the long term, it loses because it slows down innovation. We've seen this happen again and again and again, and that applies to it applied to CompuServe, it applied to AOL, and it applied to Apple, and it will apply to Apple Pay and Facebook and other closed systems like that. So there are then really very few things that you're saying you think, there are very few things that nothing can effectively displace Bitcoin, in your view. Uh, and there are very few things that can even act synergistically with it or, or potentially supersede it in terms of use because you think everything necessarily is going to be using Bitcoin because it has this security and decentralization advantage. Is that accurate? I think because as long as there are people who need what Bitcoin offers, which is control, resistance to censorship, decentralization, 
global access and innovation without permission, that means that Bitcoin will continue to grow. And the fact that it already has the ability to secure very large sums of money gives it a compelling advantage. We don't know how the future is going to play out and what competition is going to exist. But I don't think that ever goes away completely. I think that always has an application. And in my worldview says that the application that allows four billion people to become banked without borders is such a compelling application that not only does it win, that's really the market I'm most interested in. Will it be the most compelling thing for the banks? No. Uh, will it be the best way to do shopping in the developed world? Probably not. But if you take for granted that we live in a much bigger world than that, that has enormous untapped potential, I'm really interested in what you can do when you unleash that potential. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>